Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Beginning to read with verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal, multiply transgressions, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, proclaim and announce the freewill offerings, for this, you ha- for this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Also I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months of the harvest. I made it rain in one city and withheld rain from another. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, and the the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore... This will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares the man to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. I was struck as I came across this passage that it's a a largely condemnatory passage. It it indulges in quite a bit of sarcasm where God would taunt the people uh, with his anger. He speaks to them as if uh, the words can be taken seriously one way and then sarcastically another, showing how displeased he is with his people. And uh, I looked at this and uh, I... I thought, well, what, what, what does God, how does God name their sins? And he does that in just the first verse. Uh, and uh, there, the sins are not so theological. He could have attacked them on the basis of their failure to love him, Allah, the first commandment. Or, uh, uh, but it's, these, it's the, uh, the wrongs that they did to each other. And it shows that the bitterness of heart that they had for the Lord, they also spread 
to their neighbors. And, uh, and so uh, I thought to myself, uh, Amos, which is summarized in this little summary underneath the sermon outline, the beginning of the sermon outline, I wrote, Amos' indictment of sin here is not as theological as what one might expect. You know, he doesn't he doesn't attack the people for not believing in predestination or uh, not understanding the relationship between justification and sanctification. All kinds of things that he could have done, but he he attacks them as he does in verse one. Uh, he says uh, he mocks them by calling them cows, and then he says, "Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink." Now I'll get I'll deal with these passages more carefully in just a moment. But um, the rest of the passage really is a reflection on these early verses where God is angry with his people because of the culture that they've produced, because of the ethics that they've produced, where they are grinding up each other, where they are uh, eating each other in a sense, uh, and to, unto destruction. And um, I know the, the prophets, uh, the, the, this, is the, this is the way of the prophets most of the time. They will attack the uh, the ethics of the people. In one way, it's more crass, it's less sublime, or it's less lofty than a theological attack, but it's because their faith has become so gross. The, the, the theological issues of their lives have been contaminated and broken so much that it's finally had its effect upon their culture, the way they live, the way they express their faith in the everyday life. And I just thought that that would be a good thing for us to ponder on when we think of Facebook and some of the complaints that are made by the Reformed Church there, they tend to be mainly theological and there seems to be a, an allergy about going too far in applying these things into the ways that we live. So that if, uh, if a pastor does that, they're very easily uh, uh, criticized uh, for going beyond the word of God. Uh, and yet I see this time and time again in uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then all the minor prophets. Some whole chapters will catalog all these different social sins that, that the people that they, people are involved in. And so the prophet is sent to Israel to harangue the people and to proclaim, this is your sin, you're doing this, you're doing that, you fail here, you fail there. And most of the time, it, it, it's not uh, with the, the temple worship or with, um, or with the, the theology of the people, although that is all implicitly there because when we, when we uh, mince up and grind up people, uh, we are breaking the second great commandment that Jesus gave us. The first one was to love God with all your heart and soul and mind, and the second was to love your brother, you love your neighbor as yourself. And so the prophets will very often um, aim at things that almost anybody can understand. You know, they might miss, the, I don't think we're given to great theological sophistication. In fact, it's just the opposite. We, we are, we are uh, theologically uh, retarded, basically, all of us, when we start out in life. And the whole, our whole life is a, an, a, a challenge to overcome that, to overcome the things that make sense to us, theologically and spiritually, <clears throat> are usually wrong unless we learn them from the Bible. So uh, I, want to, I want to look at this passage in that light and see if you won't agree with me. Now, uh, I'm going to do something first, which I, have, I don't usually do, but that, and that is to uh, pedantically 
carefully go over the text uh, because it's fairly confusing in some ways, uh, which I think I'll, I'll show you. And I just couldn't, I, I usually like to, to, to see the themes that are there in the text, make, touch, make a touchstone to the themes in the text, and then go on and exhort you based upon those themes. But in this case, I don't think that most of us would understand this stuff unless we kind of go at it carefully, first of all. So first of all, I'm going to, in terms of the outline of the sermon, first of all, I'm going to do a, 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 an exegesis of the passage <clears throat> here and, uh, and, then, and then talk about how that ties in together in points two and three. So let's just dive into the first verse. First of all, it starts out, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. And uh, uh, in, in Hebrew, it starts out with the Hebrew word Shema. Now, there's a, there's a famous, one of the most famous Hebrew, it's one of the most famous Hebrew words in the Bible. And so I don't think any Hebrew could miss this when the prophet started out that way, using the word Shema, the verb Shema here, uh, because the most famous Shema is found in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4 and 5 where God uh, says, Hear, O Israel. And he goes on to, to proclaim uh, both his law and his gospel to them. That, that he, he, he proclaims their covenant relationship to them and the necessity that they have because, he has, because they've entered into covenant with him. And it's called, the Jews call it the Shema Israel, uh, the, the, the Hear, O Israel passage of the Bible. So here, Amos, I think, trades on that, that idea. Hear! This word, you cows of Bashan. So <laughs> instead of saying, hear, O Israel, you say, he, he's taking this famous verse, this famous phrase from Deuteronomy. And he's, instead of Israel, he calls them the cows of Bashan. Now, cows are very noble beasts in many ways. Um, going to a 4-H fair or a state fair, you see some of the, the cows that have been cultivated there, nurtured by young people that are in the agricultural world, and they, they have a real beauty. You look into a cow's face, it, it can look so kind. But intelligence is not one of the cow's uh, attributes. And I, 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 uh, I always go back to that Martin Luther quote where uh, he was disagreeing with the Roman Catholics and the way that they interpreted the passage in Romans where it talks about justification by faith alone. And uh, the word alone was not in the verse, but that was the sense of the passage. And so they were, the Roman Catholics were always throwing this up to Luther. Luther, you've misinterpreted the passage and yada, yada, yada. So one time he burst, he, he made this outburst. He said, why do you stare at this verse like, like, a, like a, a herd of cows in a newly painted gate? And you can just see all these cows standing there. And they will. They, if something catches their attention, they just kind of stare at it in the, in the slowest, most retarded manner. And you marvel. You think, are they, is that brain doing anything from moment to moment? Or are they just uh, captivated by their stupidity? And, uh, and so that's the sense in which uh, Amos is using it here. Uh, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. In other words, uh, uh, you animals that aren't especially smart. Uh, who are on the mountain of Samaria. Now, Bashan <clears throat> uh, is, is, uh, was a country that occupied the area where the Golan Heights are today. 
the Golan Heights, it's southwest Syria. And it looks down on Egypt or about on Israel. You remember how they in, in the 1967 uh, war, they used the Golan Heights to fire cannons almost all over Israel and uh, really pummel them with their artillery. So when the when the Israelis won that war, they took the, they took possession of the Golan Heights. So that would never happen again. <laughs> and uh, it was a wise military strategy to do. Uh, in this case, Samaria is in the north of Israel, and the Golan area uh, is in the northeast of, of Israel. And uh, the, the half-tribe of Manasseh, when they came into the land to possess the land, the half-tribe of Manasseh was given part of this land, part of uh, Bashan, as their possession, because they were, these were one of the pagan tribes. And as the pagan tribes were dispossessed of their land, uh, God gave it to his people. Uh, each one of the 12 tribes. And so it, it stands to reason here that Samaria, that Amos in a sense was saying, because uh, he, he was preaching in northern Israel, of which Samaria was the capital, and he was saying, okay, Samaria, you, you heights, you mountains of Samaria, uh, where the cows graze upon the heights of Samaria, look, upon, look across the valleys, look to Bashan, this height uh, across the land of Israel. But it's not that far you know, in terms of 30, 40 miles. Uh, it's not that far. And you can see some of these mountains from afar off. And so <clears throat> uh, Amos trades on that and uh, gets them to, gets them, I think, to make the contrast. You know, we're supposed to be God's people, but are, are we are we not so much like the people of Bashan? And then, and then he lists these three things, these three categories of sin that he finds really oppressive, to the name of the Lord. Uh, he says, They oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring us wine, let us drink. Now, uh, the women of society, the women of our society, and the women of our culture exert tremendous influence over the male part of the culture. Uh, and in many ways, uh, women can twist men around their fingers, hopefully for good, you know, hopefully. Wives will use this for righteousness, their, their role, and their, because it's just, uh, we see you as the flower of our lives. And uh, we're attracted to those flowers, and we want to rejoice in them. And so if you, if you smile and uh, touch our hands and our cheeks and that sort of thing, we will do almost anything for you. Well, in this case, they were they were working for evil. You see, they they were uh, seducing their husbands. So he, he looks at first of all, he looks at the, their oppression of the poor, and the not just oppression but crushing the needy. This is where Israel's theology has led them. This is what this is the ethics or the behavior or the culture that has come out of Israel's faith, and it's not good. Crushing the needy. I've got an illustration at the end of the message that has to do with um, uh, a, a young man like this that came to our house in Lynchburg, Virginia, and how uh, the culture of our family, the Lord used that as a, a key to bring him to Christ because he was so poor and he was so needy. So it's not nice it's not pleasant, it's not loving, it's not glorious when we use our strength in a culture to oppress the needy. We, we don't need to be socialists and uh, 
we, we, can be, we can be as gracious as we want to be to those poor and needy that we encounter, giving away our own money. But the God does not give us the right then to take our, our neighbor's money and act on our sense of liberality to the poor and the needy. But generally, the Bible teaches us that we are to, that our hearts should be broken. We should be so, we should be so, so thrilled with the grace God has given to us that we should want to help other people where we see need. It should be like, like breathing. It should be a natural attitude that comes out of our hearts and our souls. But this was not the case in Israel. And the, those who were uh, having parties, and gatherings where they could just frolic and, and uh, be lost in their wine, uh, they were not sharing anything like that. They didn't really care about the poor and the needy. And the, it's not a, this is not a sermon on the poor and the needy, but when you deal with the poor and the needy, and we have done that in our church at various times. We've dealt with street people. We had a couple, we've had some drug people in our church in the uh, eight years ago or so. And uh, it is costly to, to try to help people like this. But that is our calling. And uh, that should be the way it is. That should have been uh, something that was on Israel's mind. They should have looked at the poor of their culture, those that were not as intelligent. Uh, they should have encouraged them. They should have driven them. They should have challenged them. Not giving them stuff without getting the behavior. If, if they, the, the New Testament says if people are not willing to work for their food, then let them starve. But on the other hand, you, you uh, encourage them, you call them out, you challenge them. So this was just not being done at all. Now, as the passage goes on here, uh, verse 2 then challenges this whole idea, and the passage kind of flows from this theme here. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. We Twice in the Psalms so far, we have, we have had two passages that talked about worshiping in, in the holiness of God and, and uh uh, existing in, in um, uh, where God, where the where God was present, where there was holiness present, and uh, it's a it's a very powerful idea. But in this case, God has sworn; He's taken a vow. We had membership vows that were taken today, answering seven questions. Well, here God takes a vow. He swears by His holiness. What what does He swear? He says, "Behold, the days shall come upon you." When he, Amos says, when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Now, um, uh, I've alluded to this before, that this was a method that both the Assyrians and the Babylonians used to take thousands of prisoners um, uh, away, captives of war. when you've got a fish hook put through your cheek, you're you're very sensitive to where the line is going, where they want you to go, because they pull you and the, the lines are hooked to these hooks, and you have this fish hook through your cheek. It's not a very pleasant experience. And so uh, the, the lines of prisoners would wind back hundreds at a time, hundreds in one line, um, a thousand perhaps, uh, all very well controlled by one Assyrian or by one Babylonian. Uh, verse three says, "You and you, you will go through broken walls." So the idea is that the the walls will be broken, uh, broken down. And my translation says, "Each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon." Says the Lord. Now there are some real difficulties here with this text in the Hebrew, and uh, your translation may say, if you've got the King James, it will say, "Each cow straight ahead of the the other, or each each one uh, ahead of the of uh, her." 
and uh, but the the word for cow is not there in the text. Uh, it's it's just an ambiguous uh, uh, pronoun, if you will, uh, and uh, so it's translated a number of different ways. It's translated uh, 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 cow, trading on the idea that was introduced earlier when he calls them cows, and so that you can see how that idea, the context would would lead translators to, to do that. Uh, my translation just says uh, some, but uh, um, others uh, others will have translated it uh, woman, uh, trading on the idea of the, the, the women who persuade their husbands to unto debauchery. And so <clears throat> that's one of the confusions. And then when he says you will be cast, my translation says you will be cast into Harmon. And uh, right away, that didn't ring a bell with me, and so I looked it up in the Bible dictionary right away, and they had no entry for Harmon. And so I began to get, be suspicious right away, and uh, I thought, what, what is this? And, uh, but there's no, the, the word there is very ambiguous in the Hebrew also. And so they're being cast into, into uh, some place. The, the, the phrase uh, sounds like a high place, not in the uh, maybe a high, you'd be cast from a high place like in stoning. People would be cast off a roof or off a wall, and uh, they would they would hurt themselves in the fall, and then uh, thus battered, they would be stoned after that. But the, some translations even have a a, a castle or a, or a, um, a, a kingdom uh, in it, and that's the idea. If you if you're on a high a high place, you see it might be a castle or a uh, the throne of a of a king, but that's why the, that's why it is. But when you see differences in translation like that, it's often because there's an ambiguity in the text itself. And God sometimes does this for us. He wants us to think about these things and figure them out over over the long haul. And sometimes we do, sometimes we we don't. But then He goes into this this uh, this really sarcastic little well, not a little sarcastic rant, but a sarcastic rant. And you may not catch this right away. He says, "Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal, multiply transgressions." Now, these were two of the most holy places in Israel from their earliest days, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob each had significant occasions where they met God at Bethel in Gilgal. And so here, um, Amos. Uh, uses these anointed places from the past, but he's taunting the people, come, come to these places which were special in the past and, um, and um, see what you get. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Now, these, this was a meticulous description of how the Jews behaved in that day. They would bring their t- sacrifices every morning, the godly ones. They would bring their tithes every three days. Um, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and leaven. But, but, but Amos is being sarcastic here because the people, they're long past this. They may do this, but it's only outwardly. There's no sincerity. There's no delight in their hearts and their souls to worship God in this way. And he says uh, then at the end of verse 5, for this you love. You children of Israel, says the Lord. Now you can see you can, with sarcasm, like you see in, I think it's First Corinthians five, you can uh, or seven, you can you you can uh, sarcasm. We say, like to our children, when they be, our our son is misbehaved, we'll, we'll say to our son, "You are the best little boy in all the world." Whack. <laughs> you know that's where the that's where sarcasm works, and so uh, Amos is using that in this passage. 
and so he goes on from that. Yes, they're going through the outward behaviors of faith, but they're not really there with their hearts. And then they turn around, and as a result of that, they crush each other. They crush the weakest people among them. Uh, with America today, we can find fault with America's theology very, very easily. People don't like to do that. But we can even we can even easier find fault with America for its social ethics. That you take the, the, the least defensible, the least able of our population, namely the children, and when you cut them from their mother's wombs and you abort them, how much more grossly terrible and vicious can you be? And yet this is one of the political platforms of one of the two parties that we have. It's just so uh, so gross and so terrible. And with this tr human trafficking uh, that this movie is about, we've we've talked about how uh, last couple of weeks we've talked about how once we once this movie came out, how uh, about half of America, one of its parties, and then the aficionados of the, of that party, they have been a belligerent in their opposition to this movie. Now you think that people would be embarrassed? that we were enslaving our young girls and boys in this country. You, 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 it would just uh, astound us to think that there were people, would be people who would defend this practice and condemn a movie that was made to bring this to light. Whether it's Harvey Weinstein, then, though, uh, who was a, a, a trafficker and a molester of uh, young girls on this island in the Caribbean, or some other manifestation of this, uh, the left of our country is so uh, contemptibly corrupt that they actually defend these practices. And it's thought that probably Weinstein was, was killed in prison so that he could not testify against the rich and the powerful who had been with him on his jet and to his island. This is the way Israel was, though. Israel looked clean on the outside, like Jesus said. They looked like whited sepulchers, whited graves, where the, it's a grave that holds a dead body, but the outside is colorfully painted white and bright, like it was as clean as the morning. So the Lord says here, uh, he, he talks about the, the condemnation that he gave to Israel. He withheld rain from them, verse 7. There was a drought, there was a famine in verse 6. The clean, he uses clean teeth, another kind of sarcastic way of talking about it. Um, he speaks about the city in uh, verse 3. Uh, uh, he says, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, I'm confu I confused myself with my note. Um, uh, so verse 8, so two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water. He, yeah, he, brought, he brought drought on one city and then gave another momentary water. The people would go back and forth to each other. You know, the, the city in the Bible is a very enigmatic phenomenon because it's, it's spoken. The first time the word city is used, it's in uh, Deuteronomy, I mean, uh, in Genesis chapter um, 4 where it says that, uh, that the, the, the family, the reprobate family, not the family of Seth, but the family of, of uh, Enoch and, uh, and Canaan, that, that they were the ones that were the first ones that constructed a city. 
Uh, a city needs to be a place where, where humankind, where mankind develops its greatest communal strength, its greatest social strength. And so uh, in church history, uh, Augustine even spoke of the, the city of God and the city of man, uh, where this, the city, the idea of the city stood for the corruption of mankind because we pool ourselves and we pool our resources in such places and we have the greatest chance to obtain a kind of earthly glory for ourselves because we work, we team up with our resources. But he says here that he brings a drought on one city and then another. And um, and then we hear this frame, yet you have not returned to me. He says, I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees. Uh, when I did, when when the, when I allowed you to have great, a harvest like that, he said, then the, the, the locusts devoured them. I would send locusts. And yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He says in verse 10, I've sent plagues upon you like Egypt. I've killed you with a sword. Uh, the stench of the, the dead of your camps came up to your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me. Verse 10, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. Yet you have not returned to me. God would save them, and yet they wouldn't really return to him. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now, the first time I read that, I thought, what's coming next? He says, he says, therefore, this will I do to you. I was looking in the next verse or two. What, he's going to, what is he going to do to What more is he going to do to them? And, and, and I finally realized that the worst thing that he was going to do to them was he was going to come face to face with them himself. You see that in verse 12. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He tells them something terrible will become about. There's nothing more terrible to, than the New Testament says than to fall into the hands of the living God. There are some people that paint the New Testament as the greatest testament or covenant of love, and the Old Testament is a covenant of law and harshness and that sort of thing, forgetting these, some of these passages of the New Testament and forgetting the fact that the most gruesome exaction of penalty was upon God's own Son, which happened in the New Testament, the crucifixion of the beloved Lord Jesus Christ. If you want real law, and the vengeance of the Lord, you see it when Jesus cries out, My God, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou stepped back from that intimacy of father and son, like you have in this case, and given me over to the jackals and the dogs, Psalm 22 says, to gape at me and to bite and to chew. And so here we see, uh, that <clears throat> this is the application here. And uh, Amos closes this by saying, finally, he says, for behold, and he does a little litany of the powers of God. He's going to describe this God that they're going to meet. He who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is. Have you ever wondered why I think this thought or why I think that thought? God plainly says in the Bible, because the Spirit pervades your heart, your soul, and your mind. And he places those things there. God is uh, magnificent in his omnipotence and in his omniscience. And so Amos rehearses this and makes the morning darkness who treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is his name.
How have we lost a sense of the greatness of God and the holiness of God in our day? R.C. Sproul is one of the most famous authors of this, of the last century and in, even into the 21st century. And he, he uh, earned his spurs on, the, on a sermon that he did on holiness. That became a book on holiness because for Sproul, Sproul had a real sense of the awe of God in his heart. And he wanted to bring this back to the church of the 21st century. He saw that there was a great lack of this kind of sense of the Lord in people's faith. And so he began to preach and write on that. And I would say it's the most famous, the most famous virtue or the most famous sermon that he did or the books that he wrote. Although he wrote many, many good, worthy books and that sort of thing. But his works on holiness seem to capture people's imagination. And so uh, here is Amos writing at that same point. <clears throat> now, again, I'll return to what I said at the beginning of the sermon, and that is that um, Amos here speaks a lot about who God is and why they should be afraid of him and that he's going to visit them. He tells them what God has done to them in terms of famines and um, droughts and all of those kinds of things. He tells them about it, but all of that feeds on this idea of the first verse. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. You know, and in the face of these crushed people, we're going to party. Um, I, I, I would say that I see, I see a, a greater aggressiveness, a greater, uh, a greater uh, uh, thrust here in Amos and some of the prophets than I hear. We, we, we seem to uh, happily in the Reformed Church, we glory in correct theology. And we try to get our churches to follow along in that. But where in our Reformed churches is the condemnation of real and true wickedness. It's almost like we're embarrassed to really talk about that. There, there are few sermons on hell or the judgment of God in our day, even in the Reformed churches. Amos was not a man like that. And so I argue here that, uh, that, that Israel's distaste for the Lord came out in her culture and her ethics, and uh, it was really bad stuff. Now, the third point of my message is that faith is the end of all godliness. You'll note how in this passage, God keeps saying to Israel, verse, verse 6, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 8, this latter part of these verses. So verse 6, the latter part. Verse 8, the latter part. Yet you have not returned to me. Uh, verse 9, the latter part. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Verse uh, 10, yet you have not returned to me. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet the eternal God, the omnipotent God, the God of all power and all knowledge. We cannot come to the God, to God in the day of judgment and say, God, you just don't know me. You don't see the, redeem, the redeeming values of my mind and my thoughts. No, God knows you all too good, all too well. His knowledge penetrates so that People in the Bible, when they were confronted by the Lord, like uh, uh, Isaiah and Isaiah 6, 
They had no argument against the Lord. He says, woe is me. He fell on the ground before the holiness of God. He was undone by his spiritual undressing, if you will. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't even speak the truth. And I dwell in a generation of men of unclean lips. This is the heart of Amos uh, and the heart of the other prophets. And they were sent to this pagan, worldly, fleshly people to try to coerce them, to challenge them to come to the Lord. The final prophet, the final prophet who who had this task was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he could still not get people to come back to him. So he climbed a cross in order to get that healing salve, that redemptive salve, that redemptive medicine by which the Holy Spirit could apply it to our hearts and make us new and make us fleshly like the valley of dry bones that Ezekiel spoke of. And so the Holy Spirit breathes upon us and brings us to faith. Praise the Lord. Praise his holy name. Um, I mentioned that I had an illustration at the end of the, at the, end of the message. <clears throat> There's a young man in Maine who every once in a while will testify on the Internet that, uh, <laughs> that I saved him. <laughs> I say, Luke, I didn't save you. The Lord saved you. But he came to us. It was one of the most unusual situations I ever faced as a, as a minister. I was contacted by a ruling elder up in Maine. And he said he had this young man that he wanted to send down to us uh, to, uh, to, uh, to talk to and to disciple. He said he had a lot of needs. And he thought that I could be of help. I, you know, it, this just came from what I, well, we did know each other. He was OPC at the time. I was OPC. So we had talked at the General Assembly sometimes of the OPC. So uh, he sent this young fellow down there, Luke. And uh, uh, Luke was, he, he had some mechanical gifts, but he was very, very socially awkward at the time. And uh, he was very embarrassed about himself. He just, he was not a whole person. He had all kinds of personality problems at the time. And, uh, Whatever you could give him, he wanted to take more, you know. And if I'd let him, he would have. I would have had to give up my job as the pastor of that church. It's become like in, in days of old, where a king would have a special chaplain all for himself. <laughs> I could have been Luke's chaplain. So the two things we did: he he lived with us. We we actually invited. We actually brought him into our house based on this elder's request. Brought him into our house. Susan cooked for him, cleaned for him, and did these kinds of things. Uh, he did a few things here and there. Uh, he was very good with lawn, lawnmowers, and so um, he he tried. But he, he usually had a way of messing up that what he would he would say he would do, it just wouldn't quite work out right. And so when finally, but we uh, uh, we could, we could have simply been disgusted at his aberrations, at his weaknesses, at his frailties, at the fa- the, fa- the fact that he was a needy person, a la verse one. But we, we were firm with him, but we loved him. And I think that that affection came across. Now, when he, when we, when he left our home and went back to Maine, his, his, he did not have all the answers yet. But evidently, through staying with us, in God's kindness, he had testified to this young man 
that there were answers in the God of this pastor who had talked with him and had let him live with him for a while. I don't know if Christopher was dead. Do you remember, Luke? Because <laughs> uh, you were really young then. But uh, uh, Luke was a package. <laughs> I'll tell you. But we loved him because uh, uh, he, he was connected to the church. He had an elder's approval and a request from an elder to help if we could. So he went back home. Uh, after he went home, he almost he got sick. He almost died. He had a terrible disease. I forget exactly what it was, but he came this close to death. But he said all through that time, in the valley of death, he could he 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 came to understand that the Lord was with him because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ had died for him. God convinced him of that. Jesus Christ has died for you and he lived for you. And it's possible for you to have new life in him. Well, to listen to Luke today, he sounds like he sounds like the worst kind of TR. TR is short for a truly reformed or somebody that, you know, lo- loves the doctrines of the faith. He's always, he's always exhorting me to be more biblical or to be this, you know, be that. Because uh, having been regenerated, then the Lord brought him to full faith. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, Luke, if he'd talk to you, he'd tell you himself that he probably has a, a lot more to learn. But from where he was to where the Lord brought him, it's just unbelievable. And I told him, we were talking just this past weekend, and I said, I said, I'll never forget you, Luke. And uh, I'll never forget God's kindness working upon your life. Amos had that desire for Israel. Ultimately, it did not come until Christ was raised up and sent his spirit to begin to blow upon the dry bones and bring life where there was death. Let's close together. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might have a sensitive heart to hear these words of Amos, that we might, we might see that it's very often the simplest procedure in this pagan world to focus on the paganisms to focus on the gross things and to call attention to them. Uh, so many in the Reformed faith today will make a disconnect here. They'll, they'll say, no, you can't make any connection between sin and judgment. And they'll point to a couple places in the New Testament where that's true in some cases, but it's not true usually. Usually we have Psalm 1 as our model. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of scorners. Uh, blessed is that man, and, uh, and condemned is the man who does not know the Lord. And so it talks about the, va- the, the, the uh, greenery following covenant life, and it talks about the drought and the death surrounding non-covenant life. And God calls us to, to make these connections and not to be embarrassed about them because there is a God who, who, who acts and a God who does these things. As, as Amos already said in the previous chapter, if there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? We've had COVID in our land for over two years. We've had the greatest profanity taking place in the highest reaches of our government, where the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation have been partial 
giving a, a warrant to sin to some and then being overly scrupulous with others, charging them with sin where they have not sinned. Just this past week, there was this country western song that the progressives have leapt upon. And uh, there's nothing bad in the song, but it's only evil because they say it and they, they try to repeat it often. And so by the multitude, the multi, multi, multitude of condemnations, they expect to the, the people of the land would believe that what they say is true. Oh God, what an evil day we have come to where the ninth commandment and its breakage is, is being used as a weapon against innocent people trying to ruin their lives. Oh God, we are trotting upon the poor and the needy ourselves today. And it's because we do not have a gospel. We do not have justification before thy mighty face. And so we turn to try to self-justify ourselves by pointing out the evil of others. We think that by condemning them and by ruining their lives that we will somehow, in a boomerang kind of way, justify ourselves. Oh God, take us from this day via the gospel. Help Jesus Christ to reign in our land. Help us to understand these things and help us to worship the Lord with a greater sense of freedom and purity. And by that, bring glory to thy name, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.